Well, let's keep our Bibles open, please, at Isaiah chapter 53. This is a long book, the book of Isaiah, as those of us who come regularly to 10th have been discovering. But as the book has progressed, a number of things have progressed with us as we've studied. One is our insight into the character of God. Increasingly, as the book has progressed, Isaiah has built up a, a profile of who God is that has left us, as it were, dumbfounded, silenced, and wondering at the sheer majesty of God's glory. That is, he is big, he is great, he is the creator of everything and everyone. Marveling at God as the ruler of all things, he ordains everything that comes to pass. He rules over everything and everyone, everywhere, at all times. And in particular, this God is holy. That's been one of the themes, again, that's been repeated over and over and over again. He is blisteringly holy. He is unapproachable in his holiness. He is distant from us. In fact, the holiness of God represents everything that makes God apart from us, above us, and against us. Everything in him makes him different because he is holy. He is a holy God. Against that background, Isaiah has painted a picture of humanity. He's begun with God's chosen people, the Jews. He's described all the benefits that they've received, and, and yet these people are under the wrath of God. They're going to lose Jerusalem. They're going to lose Judea. They're going to be taken into exile. God is going to judge the world. And he will judge the world by beginning by judging his own people. His own people don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card when it comes to the judgment of God. But blended into that unfolding revelation in the book. There has been promises, promises of God. God is going to act. God with us, born of a virgin, with divine titles, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, born of the line of David, born yet God we come to chapter 40. Suddenly we're told that, that this one who's coming, who is a, going to be a king reigning on David's throne, is in fact God himself. Prepare the way of the Lord, says the prophet. We're expecting the Lord to turn up. God himself to turn up. And then as we have approached this part that we're at this morning, when he arrives... He arrives in the form of a servant. When we were expecting that all the majesty that we've seen and all the power that we've seen would be manifested or evidenced in this personality when he appears, when he appears, he appears as a servant. It was not what we were expecting. Nor, as we near the end of this book, is the solution for God's people simply that they're going to return back to Jerusalem? Oh, Isaiah has said they will, but, but that is not actually the hope that he holds out to them. 
Them returning back to Jerusalem and a much diminished Judah would not be God's ultimate solution, either for the Jews or for the rest of the human race. It will be a great new commonwealth, a great new Zion that comprehends both Jews and Gentiles. And when that is first announced in chapter 40 in verse 1 and 2, at the heart of that good news message that God is going to intervene in human affairs is this announcement. Go tell her that her warfare has ended. That is her controversy with God. Her argument with God, the fact that she is in hostilities with Almighty God, tell her that has been ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now the question is, how can it be? How can a God as holy as Isaiah says he is, accept and pardon people who are as unholy as he has said we are. That's the issue. How do we resolve that fundamental conundrum at the very heart of the book and at the very heart of the human story? That is the issue now that that he is addressing and it is addressed in its fullest and clearest here in this song. A song that begins properly in chapter 52, verse 13, and ends at the end of 53. In this song, we have it announced that the Lord, when he comes, will come as himself. He will come in his own presence to act on behalf of his people. To whom, look at verse 1 of chapter 53, to whom is the arm of the Lord being revealed. It will be as if God himself has rolled up his sleeves to get his hands-on involvement in the business of reclaiming Israel to himself and of achieving a worldwide salvation that will apply to believing people, whether they belong to Israel or whether they belong to the Gentiles. The arm of the Lord in person. He is a person. He is the person that God wants us to look at Right at the very beginning of this song in chapter 52, 13. Behold, God says, look, I want you to see what the arm of the Lord, God in action and God present to act for you looks like. He is my servant. Verse 13, the very first part of this poem. He is the righteous servant. Verse 11 of chapter 53. He is absolutely righteous. You look in the Old Testament and you find all kinds of people called the servants of God. Israel was called the servant of God. Its job was to do what God told it to do. The prophets were the servants of God, people like Isaiah. And yet when you look at the story, the human story as it is unfolded in the Bible and and unfolded even in Isaiah's great book, you discover that Israel, the nation, is unrighteous and even the prophet of God when he's confronted by the holiness of God is intensely aware of his own unrighteousness unrighteousness goes to the heart of who we are all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the solution to the human problem lies 
in this servant and in him alone. This poem that we're looking at, which begins, I say, in 52.13 and goes on to the end of chapter 53, has five stanzas in the original Hebrew. The first and the last stanza tell us that this servant is going to be successful. He is going to achieve what he comes into the world to achieve. He is going to be exalted to the very highest throne of God himself. That's in verse 13. And then in 53.12, my servant shall be exalted, lifted high, and exalted. And I will divide with him a portion among the many. He shall divide the spoil, that is the results of victory, among the strong. Now we saw that last time. But we also saw this very enigmatic and strange and surprising element in the story. Back in 52.14, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. His form beyond that of the children of man. He looked subhuman. Verse 2 of chapter 53. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. Despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. And we esteemed him not. Now that raises a question. Why is this one who is going to get the throne of God? Why is this one who is going to see the results of his triumph and his victory and his success? Why is this one looking so disheveled, looking so mistreated and abused? Why is he despised and rejected? Why is he like this? Why is he a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? Sorrows and grief are the effects of sin in the world. Sin in the world brings sorrow and grief to our hearts and our experience. How is this one who is called the righteous servant and the very arm of God himself, the personal presence of God in power, how is this one acquainted with sorrows and grief? And the answer to that question is in the middle stanza, the verses we read this morning, verses 4 to 6, and at the structural center of the entire poem in the Hebrew. The structural center is the middle of the middle, verse 5. He was wounded, bruised, uh, pierced rather for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment or chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. With these words, Isaiah is finally explaining why this righteous servant has suffered so acutely and so terribly. We might be wondering whether he had done something really terrible. In fact, at the end of, uh, at the end of verse uh, Four, three, rather, at the end of verse 3, we find people saying he was despised and we esteemed him not. We didn't consider him worth noting. In the end, it, it, he could have been suffering like this because he deserved to be suffering like this. In fact, it says at the end of verse 4, do you notice, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. That means we considered that this man had suffered the curse of God. He was accursed. 
that he was under the curse of heaven, cut off from God. Something in the way his life will work out in his death, he will be regarded as cursed. And we know, of course, that the Bible says in Leviticus that everyone who is hung on a tree is under the curse of God. They would be right in thinking that he was cursed, but not for the reasons that men supposed. So at the very heart then of this, we are taken to the heart of the gospel, the good news message of the Messiah. Jesus himself quotes it in Luke chapter 22 and tells us that, quoting Isaiah 53, what was written about me has had its fulfillment. John in John chapter 12 in his gospel refers to this chapter and says that the word of, by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And Jesus in that great remark, in that great statement in, Matthew chapter, in Mark chapter 10, describes himself as the servant of the Lord. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, that is to take on the role of the suffering servant and to give his life as a ransom for, that is in the place of, for many. So this middle stanza then takes us to the heart of the story. And as we listen to it, it's being spoken by the apostles. They were 700 years or so ahead of Isaiah's time. But Isaiah in his time before Christ speaks using their language and speaks in their character and persona. He was despised and rejected by men. What do we learn about the sufferings then of the servant from this passage? The first thing we learn about it is that he is acting as a substitute. He is taking the part of other people. He is acting in the place of other people. Isaiah has told us, look at verse 3. That he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Does this mean that this man in his life is experiencing the outworking of sin that all the rest of us experience in our lives? Sin brings sorrows and grief into our experience, our human experience. Well, verse 4 gives the answer. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. There's the explanation. What he endured was not the natural outcome of his sin, was not the natural outworking of the effects of sin in his life. What he endured was in fact the outworking of the personal sin in my life and your life. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He is a substitute. He is in our place. The first lesson we learn is about place taking. Jesus takes the place of his people. Now this is a remarkable insight. Normally in the Bible, you stand accused of your sin or wrongdoing and you take the punishment yourself. Zimri, one individual in the Bible we're told, died for all the sins he had committed. One man, one punishment. 
The soul that sins, it shall die. But in this case, this one is place-taking. He is taking the place of others. Now, when we, we sometimes the technical theological description of this is penal substitution. I'll explain that later on. But I'm just telling you right now up front because when I wrote that down in a piece of paper when I was 17 and going before our denominational interview committee and I had that and they read that out, some of the people there mocked and said I had no idea what I was talking about and where did I get that language. And if only they'd given me the opportunity to answer the question, which they did not do, I would have said, well, I discovered an old book by a man called R.J. Campbell uh, called Modern Theology, and I'd read that book, and in that book I'd read about the atonement, and he spent most of his time denying that there was any penalty involved in the atonement and that there was any substitution involved in the atonement. R.J. Campbell was a modernist. I read that, realized it didn't go with the Bible, and was very happy that I'd only spent five pence from the market in Glasgow on that book. Uh, there's a man called uh, Ottfried Hoffius, uh, a German theologian today. He's a liberal theologian. He finds what he finds in Isaiah 53, he tells us, disgusts him. He complains. These are his words, that the ideas of substitution of place-taking are simply outrageous. In the legal realm, personal guilt is non-transferable. The punishment to be borne by any given person can, no long, can under no circumstances be substitutionary, taken over or atoned for by another person. Being freed up from sin and guilt through human substitution is theologically simply unthinkable. Now, this is the point. That's what he thinks about it. He's being straightforward. It's unthinkable. It's outrageous. But as a, as a student of Old Testament, he cannot evade the fact that it's there in Isaiah 53. It's all about place-taking. Now, what do we mean by substitution? It means putting yourself in danger for somebody else. I want you to imagine just for a moment, a young couple are walking by the shores of the sea. They're walking through some, some grass at the side of the sea, watching the sea splashing against the, sh the shore. When one of the couple, not the guy, uh, trips over something and disturbs a wasp's nest. Now, you don't have wasps here, but if you think of an angry bee and then multiply it by infinity, that's what angry wasps look like. These angry wasps begin to attack. A whole cloud of them come after this couple. The young man, the hero of the story, uh, pushes his girlfriend forward and says, you're on off, dear. It doesn't matter about me. And he goes in another direction and the wasps follow him. She's saved and he's attacked. Fortunately, he outran them. He could do that in those days. He's a humble, he, he was a humble young man. He's never told that story in public many times. Uh, but, uh, but that's the kind of guy you want to marry. Girls, the guy that will do that for you. But you, the warning is you have to live the rest of your life knowing that he will remember and will remind. And if he's a preacher, tell it as an illustration in a story. But the whole point of that picture, get this picture, is somebody's in danger. Somebody else puts themselves 
between the danger and you. Now you multiply that, you multiply that, and you see this in the text. Look at the text here. Look at the substitution and the repeated contrast here. He, his, him on the one hand, we, us, we all, us all on the other hand. Let me read it to you uh, in a Hebrew, a direct translation from the Hebrew. Surely our sicknesses, he bore them. Our pains, he suffered them. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment of our salvation lay upon him, and by his wounds, healing has come to us. You see the movement? It's as clear as clear is day. This one is in our place. He is taking our place. The Lord has caused to fall on him the iniquity of us all. This lies at the very heart of the Christian gospel. He is taking our place. They were right to think that he was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. They were right to imagine that he had come under the curse of God, but they were wrong to imagine that he had come under that curse for anything that he had done. No, he is in the place of his people. But it's not only place-taking. There is sin-bearing in this text. Look again. Look at verse 4. He has borne. To bear sin means figuratively that you take the sin away and pardon the sinner. You take the sin away. He has borne our sins. Now, in in this passage, you notice in verse 4, we have a description of the effects of sin in the world, griefs and sorrows. Well, he experienced the effects of sin in his life. But in verse 5, we're taken to the root, to the heart. What are these sins? They are our transgressions, and they are our iniquities. And they are the punishment, the chastisement, the punishment, the penalty, that is due to us. That's the flow of the passage. And it's central to understand what is going on in this story. What are transgressions? Well, they are the times when we willfully act in rebellion against God. We cross the line. We break the commandments. We transgress. There's a sign that says, no trespasses allowed. And we climb over onto the other side. We break the law. We trespass and transgress the law of God. Of course, we don't like to think of it in those terms. I think we all spend our lives trying to twist and turn to get out from under this. We rename our transgressions, shortcomings, weaknesses, mistakes, failures, oversights, and so on. We do that that all the time. We euphemize, not euthanize, euphemize what our sins and our transgressions are. But that's what Jesus came to take, transgressions and iniquities. Iniquities uh, refer to a kind of twistedness in our nature or or a, a permanent dye that 
penetrates and stains every part of our character so that we can't evade it. It's not, it's not just that these things are kind of little adjuncts to our life. The whole, of, the whole of our lives is pervaded, penetrated, stained as a result of sin. Now, now these words here, and uh, the idea of our wounds and so on, are, are being healed. These words don't just appear out of the blue here in Isaiah 53. Going right back to the very beginning of the book, these are exactly the same words that Isaiah has used of Israel and Judah. Right at the very beginning, he takes us to the heart of the real human dilemma. O sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, who have forsaken the Lord, despised the Holy One of Israel, are utterly estranged. There's the heart of the matter. And what does it look like? Well, it looks like this. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. The language of disease. The language of distress. With the language of depravity, that is human sin, pervading all of human life. (laughs) And better worship could not correct this problem. Right living could not make amends for this problem. Contrite words would not blot out the old words of rebellion. Even religious devotion could not rectify the wrong done to our Creator. What this needs is sin to be wiped away, borne away, carried away. Disease to be taken and replaced with spiritual health. The deserved blows of punishment to be deflected onto someone else rather than onto us. Place-taking, sin-bearing, debt-paying. He has been pierced through as a result of our rebellion. He has received, if you will, a mortal wound. We think of the nails in his hands. We think of the spear in his side. You remember that was that final stab that demonstrated to those looking on that he was dead as it pierced his pericardium and demonstrated as they saw the clot and serum come out looking like blood and water. They saw, demonstrated that Christ had died, pierced through means to receive that final mortal wound. Crushed. Crushed on account of our iniquity. To be crushed means to be pulverized, ground to the dust by the circumstances that overwhelmed him. Do you see what it says? Pierced for. Crushed for. That means on account of, on behalf of, in the place of. It's a substitutionary word. He was pierced through, but I should have been. He was crushed, but I should have been. The second half of this verse 
shows us that he met the death penalty that our sins deserve. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. He pays the debt. He pays the debt. But fourthly, there's salvation bringing in this text. He pays the debt so that he might bring us peace and heal our stripes. Back in chapter 48, we read, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. We are not naturally at peace with God. We are not by nature in a right relationship with God. We are not by nature reconciled to God. We are alienated from him. The very fact the Bible talks about peace demonstrates or is meant to alert us to the fact that there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. There is no peace. We are without hope and without God in the world. And the great hope and longing of the people of Israel was that one day there would be shalom. The shalom, the peace of God, well-being, wholeness, things back in order, balance restored. And that's what God wants to give his people. That's why he puts it in the liturgy of Israel. That they would experience one day the peace of God. He wants to bring them to that place of peace. But in order for that peace to happen, the issue, the sin issue in our hearts needs to be dealt with. And it cannot be dealt with from our side. We can't deal with the problem. It's above our pay grade. We cannot resolve the issue. That has to be done by someone else, by this other, this servant. Back in chapter 1, the backs of the people are covered with welts and sores, the strokes of the lash for their rebellion. How can that be healed? Well, only if the strokes of the lash and the welts and the sores are laid upon this other one instead. The punishment laid upon him. And so he takes the punishment. He bears the penalty of sin instead of his people, in place of his people, on the part of his people. And he endures that in order that they might have peace and that they might be healed. In other words, cleaned, cleaned right through the core of their being, cleaned by the power of of his work. This is the thing that these kings, back in verse 15 of 52, that they see, he will sprinkle many nations. He will bring cleansing to many, many nations. This is how he does it. He does it by acting on behalf of his people. The summary of the teaching is in verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's a biblical picture of humanity's problem. Jesus often used this illustration when he was describing the human condition. A sheep is particularly vulnerable when lost. It cannot help itself. It cannot find food. There's no sense of direction. It's exposed to all kinds of dangers and predators. I just gave that little summary there, and I realized that sheep is also the word used of the church. <laughs> That's why you're all looking sheepish this morning. Uh, but there, there you are. That's the picture that the Bible paints of, 
of those who are without hope, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. There is a, a willfulness, and, and, a, and we confirm this word of God. We confirm this every day we make a choice that's wrong. A thousand times a day we confirm Bible to be right. We deliberately choose to live or think or make decisions as if there is no God. And yet, God has taken the initiative. Here he has brought together in one place all the accumulated iniquities of all of his believing people, concentrated them on the head of the Lamb of God, who has carried them in his own body on the tree, has died for them, has taken and endured their punishment, having paid their debt to God in one sacrifice for sin for all time. He has secured eternal salvation For all who believe in him, for all eternity, the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. One theological word you need to learn, I lied earlier, there's another one, not just one, is the word imputation, comes from the Latin, imputare, means to charge to someone else's account. We're in debt to God because we've broken his law, we're indebted to him. We cannot pay the debt. And so what has happened is that the Lord has charged to Jesus' account what we owe to him. Jesus voluntarily, the Son of God from all eternity, voluntarily undertook to take that debt on himself. Because in a moral universe there must be punishment or else morality and order fail. To turn a blind eye and just say, I pardon you because that's what God does, is to fall far short of reality. And in Christ, God himself undertook to bear the penalty of a broken law and a broken heart. His law and his heart. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. One of the great movies of all time, I suppose, is the movie Braveheart. It's about the greatest nation on earth. And, uh, but about more than a thousand years, Braveheart, you remember William Wallace, came from the same area as me. And in the movie, remarkably, has the same accent uh, as I used to have or should have had if I hadn't been posh. And, uh, and, uh, He was fighting the English, of course, the dreaded English. Over a thousand years before Braveheart, there was an even greater power invaded Scotland, the Romans. And uh, the Romans were not as successful in Scotland. Round about the year AD 30, when Jesus was in Judah and Jerusalem, the fierce Scots were worrying the Romans so much, they decided to abandon the great earthenwork wall called the Antonine Wall, which you can still see, uh, to abandon it and, and retreat deep into England, go south, get away from those Scots as far as possible. 
And uh, what they did was they dug great trenches, huge trenches, and they left in those trenches all their ironwork, their spears, their swords, their arrowheads, their nails, things they did not want to, to land into the hands of these unruly Scots because they would be used against them. They buried them. And those sites were not discovered until the 1960s. And in the, in the, they found that uh, though there was a kind of a corroded layer at top, underneath everything was in superb condition, and it was shipped to museums all over the world. I have in my hand here a Roman nail that is over 2,000 years old. It was part of that collection. It was part of the corroded part on top. This Roman nail was carried about by Roman soldiers while Jesus was wandering around Palestine preaching. That's how old it is. When it says Jesus was pierced through for our transgressions, that is not an an imaginary concept. He was pierced through for our transgressions with a nail like this, contemporary to this. Isaiah was not imagining it. 700 years before Jesus came, he tells us what was going to happen. Pierced in his hands and in his feet. And then a spear wound in his side. I wish my dad had managed to get a spearhead. That would have been great. My dad kind of was responsible for shifting the stuff. The other stuff was just going to be discarded, he told me. And I believed him. And he got me this. And yet I want to tell you that it wasn't just that Jesus Christ was pierced through with these nails. He was pierced through with all the arrows of God's judgment against all of our sins. Pierced through to the very core of his being. Bearing sin and scoffing rude in my place, condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. And you are a believer if you've ever come to that place where you're able to say, wounded for me, wounded for me. There on the cross, he was wounded for me. Let me recap. This little section we have read uh, summarizes some of the key things we need to learn about the death of Jesus. Paul Wells from France teaches theology in France in a seminary that we know, love, and support. Says about these verses, the bearing of sins here indicates figuratively that sins are taken away and pardoned. The way sins are borne was by the servant being bruised, smitten, and afflicted. The nature of the sin bearing was a punishment. The punishment was of divine origin. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. It was accomplished for others. And the suffering of the victim resulted in the healing, the restoration, the salvation of men and women. That's what our Lord Jesus has done for us. When we were in Sunday school as boys, we were taught... To take verses of the Bible and to insert ourselves in there. This morning I invite you to do that too. 
I invite you to trust in the Lord Jesus, to rest in the Lord Jesus, and to be able to go back to these verses and say something like this. Jesus was wounded for my transgressions. Jesus was bruised for my iniquities. And the Lord has laid on Jesus all my iniquities. Can you say that? Let that be the greatest joy of your heart, to know that this Savior is yours. And if you've never come to him, never trusted in him, you can do that. There's no negotiation necessary, no bartering process. It's a gift. You receive him and rest upon him. And the warfare is over, and the iniquity is pardoned. And there's a double blessing in place of judgment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, so that we might be restored to fellowship with you. We pray that you would take your word today, write it on our hearts and give us voices to praise you and lives to love you. In Jesus' strong name, amen.